Hey, and welcome to Pro Corner with Austin Serhoff. This week's episode features my conversation with World Championships gold medalist and Texas women's swimming and diving alum Madison Cox. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to remind everyone that I will be launching a Patreon page next week. Um, Patreon is a place where fans of the podcast can subscribe and get access to exclusive premium content unavailable on free streaming services. For example, um, some stuff that'll be on the website are going to be bonus video clips with my guests, um, training videos from myself and other professional athletes in sports, and also uh, documents detailing our training plans. It'll be that. It'll be a lot of other stuff. Um, the goal of the Patreon is to give people who subscribe even more tools to succeed in high value situations in their life, whether they are training for their own sport or they want to get better at some other facet of their life where the pressure is really on. Um, the value of the Patreon is going to be learning from these amazing professional athletes that I interview and the training that I do and other pros do, uh, to improve our lives. So if that's something that interests you, keep an eye out. I'll be launching the Patreon page on Wednesday, December 2nd, and that will be in conjunction with my 10th episode of the podcast. I can't believe I've come this far already. It's pretty cool. And that will be with my very special guest for the 10th episode, Jason Lezak. Uh, most of us already know that Jason Lezak is a four-time Olympian, uh, multiple gold medals, and the anchor leg of the most exciting relay in the history of swimming in 2008. In our conversation, we go through his career as a professional swimmer and each of the Olympics that he made. Um, and also, equally importantly, we go through his job as the Cali Condors GM in the Inter International Swimming League. And even though we talked before this happened, the conversation is timely because the Cali Condors just won the second season of the ISL's championship. So keep an eye out for that. It's a great time to be a Cali Condor, and Jason Lezak is the GM. He's also my very first sports executive I'm having on the podcast, and that's something that I'm going to be looking to do is expand beyond athletes and coaches. I want to cover every aspect of the sports industry and uh, further down the road, other sports besides just swimming. If you enjoy what you hear in this episode, Keep an eye out within the next week or so, Madison and I are going to be doing a live show where we engage with listener feedback, listeners' questions, and anything that you guys want to talk about. So listen to the episode. If there's anything you want to ask Madison or myself, submit questions to austin at procornerpodcast.com via email or via the Pro Corner Podcast Instagram page. On to Madison. Madison's someone I've known for about seven years now. I got to meet her in 2013 when she showed up to Texas as a freshman. She was actually classmates with my sister, Jordan. So I've always had um, an admiration of her from afar. And I've gotten to hear about her from Jordan over the years because they were friends and classmates and they went through all of the hoops and all of the ups and downs of college together. So getting to talk to her today you know, it was like getting to talk to a family friend. And I've admired for a long time how she's pushed through setbacks and adversity that she's faced in her career. And I'm really glad that I got to talk to her today because 
we detail something that I didn't know before, which was just how powerful her mind is when she pushes through tough times and when she sets out to achieve goals. And the mind is something that I've been thinking a lot about since I started this podcast, since I've returned to professional swimming myself as an older swimmer looking for some kind of edge besides working hard because let's be playing with each other. Everyone that's remotely good at swimming works hard. And you may think, oh, there's that one guy on the team. Oh yeah, he's super talented, but he doesn't work hard. You know what? It's swimming. He's still working pretty hard just to get to where that he got. Or, oh, that girl, like, you know, she only saves up for the fast days. She doesn't work hard these other days. She's still working hard on those fast days. So what I've found is that hard work is a constant, but the X factor is the mind. And Madison is someone who is extremely skilled and sharp and in control of what her mind does. It's a journey she's been on since she was a little kid. We talk about how she had learned these skills from her club coach when she was very young, invested in these skills of visualization and goal setting and using her mind to achieve goals and getting better at it for years and years and even continuing to improve on it as an adult. And it's carried her through tough times. It's helped her achieve pretty high highs in the sport of swimming to the tune of a world's gold medal a couple years ago. And it continues to serve her as she lives a life right now as a prof- both a professional swimmer and someone pursuing a master's at the University of Texas. So let's not delay this any further. Uh, let's get to my guest, Madison Cox. <laughs> I'm here with Madison Cox. Uh, She's currently at her apartment in Austin, Texas right now, getting back from a day of class. And then did you have morning practice this morning? We had this weird like 11 to 1 practice. It's a new schedule we have, but yes. Okay. 11 to 1 is awesome and definitely one of the perks of the Um, (laughs) pro-life. So what is is day-to-day life for you like right now? Because you're graduated from undergrad but you're a professional swimmer and also pursuing a master's. So can you just kind of take us through what you're doing day to day right now? Yeah. Um, I mean, every day looks different. We have really Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we have morning practice like normal, Mm -hmm. um, during the day. Oh, and then I lift right after. And then during the day, I just, I really just study, get stuff done. Um, I am, like you said, I'm getting my master's degree in public health. So, working on that. It's not too rigorous, um, but it does give me something to do during the day and something to kind of like have goals for and kind of yeah. not be so like just single-mindedly focused on swimming. Um, so I do that during the day and then practice at night, um, three to five on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then I come home, eat a good dinner. And sadly, I'm in bed by 8 p.m. almost every <laughs> single night. And I, I mean, it's sad saying it, but I actually just completely love it because I'll have 6 a.m. practice and still get able be able to get in at least eight hours of sleep um Mm -hmm. and that's something that I found really important especially like through the years of swimming I don't think I necessarily prioritized that as an undergrad so I I have two threads I want to pull on from everything you've described the first is the smaller one is it different balancing school now as a professional where you know when you're a collegiate athlete and you're on scholarship and you're also balancing a big course load. 
-hmm. it almost makes school more enormous because it's kind of tied to your, I guess you're standing on the team. So what is it like now that you're a pro, you're doing it by choice and you're in school by choice? Like has, does that change how you feel about your schedule now versus when you were an undergrad? Um, yes. So I definitely feel like less stressed out by it. Cause when I was an undergrad, like we really put it, our, the women's team really put an emphasis on like team GPA. So I really felt like, I mean, I wanted to get good grades to help me, you know, further in life and with, um, post-grad work after, uh, my undergrad, but I really like didn't want to mess up the team GPA and want to contribute as best I can and like, and get those perfect grades. And now it's just, it's a little less stressful. And I also like, if I'm kind of going through it, I'm like, no, I chose to be here. Like I chose to be in this like, circumstance. Um, I'm choosing to do all this hard work and like, that doesn't make it easy really, but it does kind of give me a different perspective and framework. And I think, um, kind of helps me get through like the harder, really, um, bulky seasons of hard training and hard school. Right. Because you kind of, even if you don't do this, you kind of have this lever at your disposal. Whereas when you're in college, you're in such a flow of the season and you're beholden to, like you said, this entire team for team GPA average and then how the team does at NCAs and you have to go to all these dual meets. Whereas the lever you can pull as a pro is anytime you want, you just be like, nope, I'm taking a break. Like I can't do yeah. this. Like yeah. you can tap out at any time. And so the second piece that I wanted to pull on is Going to what you said about going to bed at 8 p.m. every night, getting your eight hours, it sounds like you really value the schedule that you've put together. And you've kind of had an unbroken experience training in your specific program. So you came to school in 2013 as a freshman at Texas mm -hmm. and basically seamlessly transitioned to being a pro in 2017. And now we're here in 2020. So when you graduated and you had that ability to kind of thread your own schedule day to day? Did you have to figure it out as you went? Or is, is that something you sorted out when you were still an undergrad in college? No, that's definitely something I, um, I kind of like took as I went. So I was kind of fortunate. So after, when I graduated, or I finished my eligibility in 2017, I still had another year of school. So I kind of went, I transitioned into the pro life piece by piece. So I had, um, Initially, I was done with my eligibility, and I was a pro in swimming, and so I was still swimming, um, but I wasn't on the team, but I did have school still for another year, mm -hmm. and then the school component was taken out for a little bit, um, so I, and then I kind of acclimated and adjusted, and I think one of the ways I've been able to like do so, so well is that I have been at the same program for seven years now, and so I really have a strong relationship with my coach, and so I can also... Like I know physically when I'm not feeling great, like I know my body so well, but also like Carol can just look at me and be like, like from across the deck, be like, you just look stressed, go home, take the afternoon off. Um, and by now I've gotten to the point where I just text her before practice. I'm like, I'm not coming in today. Like it's, it's not going to serve me, but like, it's not going to serve me well. It's not going to serve people around me. Well, I'll probably be negative. Like for everyone's benefit, I'm just going to take the day off. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's definitely something that I wasn't as comfortable doing when I first, um, graduated or finished my eligibility but now have come to realize like no that's completely fine I'm gonna do exactly what I need to do when I need to do it um and kind of just like prioritize me I think that's definitely a big difference between a collegiate swimmer and a, a pro swimmer like I when I was on the team I was really like 
I was really focused on what my teammates did, you know, making mm -hmm. sure like I was doing everything for the betterment of the team. And now I do everything for the betterment of myself, which mm -hmm. is sounds a little selfish, but um, I guess that's kind of what being a pro is. Well, not at all. I mean, it is your literal job to do this. And I want to touch more on that in a little bit, but it is your little job to do this. You have to focus on yourself. It's like saying, you know, an accountant being like, well, it, I feel selfish, you know, focusing on doing my job really well, right? Like swimmers aren't any different. It's your job to do it. Um, one thing that people might not really understand who aren't familiar with with swimming, they see it as an individual sport. And some people might be hearing you say this, like she's not beholden to a team anymore. Now she's a pro. It must feel like super great from day one to be like, I am all about me now. Mm -hmm. But you and I coming from a program like Texas where the team is so close and means so much to each other, I at least had a really tough transition period uh, coming out of undergrad being a pro because I had so many external factors that I could depend on to keep me accountable. Mm -hmm. And I also had the support of a team, this like, I don't know, this nebulous subconscious thing that was always uh, supporting me. And when that's stripped away, there is a transition period before you really come into your own as a I'm about me pro. So did you have a transition period like that? Because uh, like yourself, my first year as a pro, I was at Texas with the team and it was very weird being there, but not being on the team. So yeah. how did that transition go for you, maybe from your first year to where you're at now with that? Absolutely. It, it was definitely weird. Um, I remember just like also your role on the team is different. So I was like my senior year, I went from being captain to now like when drama happens or, or you know, whatever happens on the team, like you're not you're you have to like remove yourself from all that you're not in, involved in gossip you're not anything like that and and yeah you do like you're swimming for yourself instead of for the team and like I still compete with Texas Caps on I still you know compete for Carol and for um the things that she has given me throughout the whole like my whole career pretty much um but it, it was definitely a weird transition and I think one of the reasons it has gotten a lot better is because when I first finished my eligibility I was still swimming with people that I was on the team with still mm -hmm. swimming with people you know like it, and then they were all of a sudden the underclassmen were all of a sudden upperclassmen it was just this weird thing and you didn't really know where I didn't like really know where I fit in and at the time and, I was the and only to cut in these people are your friends too yeah and a big part of your relationship is tied up with the rhythms you guys were in on the team together exactly but keep going I want to hear more about this exactly exactly so um and then um yeah, like you said, the, you're, you're friends with them, everything like that. And then you go to just like, I mean, I'm still friends with them, but especially the younger kids now, I, I, I mean, I, I have a relationship with them, but um, it's not definitely not the same. Um, oh, and, and what I was saying is at the time when I first graduated, um, I was the only female pro on the team. Mm -hmm. And my, during my time when I was, was an undergrad, I was thankful Laura Sogar was a pro, um, a female pro. So I kind of got to see how she interacted and how um, she kind of dealt with that. Um, I know I didn't know her when she was on the college team, but I knew her as a pro. So I saw how she dealt with that and like how um, she was friendly with us, but not like too friendly and like wasn't a teammate, but was still was there to support us. Mm -hmm. um, just all these weird dynamics that I didn't necessarily really notice while I was on the team with her. Um, but after I became um, a pro swimming, I definitely 
all like there's so many times that just went through my head I was like what would Laura do in this situation like what would Sogar do yeah. uh, and I really tried to like look to what sh how she handled herself because I thought she was just like phenomenal role model through and through so um that is one way actually I think that I um found my place that I'm now in I love that and I want to press you for a specific here because swimming is weird in the fact that when you become a pro you basically stay with your college team unless you go to like a pro site or if you go to a place like NC State or down with you guys in Texas where there's a real pro group yeah and so people talk all the time and I spoke with uh assistant coach Wyatt Collins about how freshmen learn from seniors who learn from those seniors and on and unbroken but you learned from a pro while you were on the college team about what it takes to be a pro. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, are there any specific situations that you saw Laura handle or specific things that you saw her do that you were like, I want to do that too. And that helped you along your own path as a pro. Um, that's a good question. I, I really think it was more like, uh, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on here, but like, I mean, she was there with us at practice. She would mm -hmm. support us all the way, but like she wasn't going to parties with us or like going to, like there was like a clear, like it was, this was clearly her job and her profession and she took it very professionally. That's exactly what she did. Like she wasn't in, involved in the drama. Like, I mean, you could, you could go with her to her with problems, but it wasn't like, oh, did you hear what Sogar did this week? Like she like set an extremely professional example of like what it meant to like, be on the team and be a positive role model and be have a positive impact on all those around her but not be like too invested or intertwined with the actual like collegiate team mm -hmm. yeah that and that was pulling it back to me for a sec because me and laura were pros parallel at the exact same time because we were in the same class and yeah laura's always had a good way of as far as i've known when i've known her of just like being able to compartmentalize and set up those, um, I guess the boundaries that you were talking about. So it doesn't surprise me that she was able to be like, all right, I'm friends with you guys, but also I know a clear line of, I'm not involved with this, this, and this anymore. Yeah. And then for someone like me, it was like, I don't know what to sever and what not. So I completely removed myself. Right. And so for you now, how do you how do you see your role as the pro relative to this swim team? Because you're still with this swim team that yeah. has college kids on it training with them. Mm -hmm. So what do you see your role, Madison Cox, professional swimmer, relative to this whole swim team that is Texas swimming? Um, I would say my role, I, I really just try at least to like be a leader, but not in the sense of like a captain kind of leader, more of like a set an example mm -hmm. and give them advice wherever I can. I mean, I feel like I've, I've been through so much with this team and like seen so much that whenever we're having a team meeting or whenever I'm just like chatting with one-on-one, -on -one, I'm like, Oh, like this happened to me. Like, this is how I dealt with it. So like a, I, a, some of the team does come to me with their problems. And I do feel like I'm like, look, I went there. Everyone goes there. Like it happened. Mm -hmm. it, it also like normalizes a lot of the, hard stuff you go through in college and you like go through as an undergrad especially like an athlete um so I tr try to be there for them in that way and just really just support them and know that like I might not be competing with you like alongside you but I will always be on the sidelines and have your back mm -hmm. um 
yeah, I mean, that sort of role is hard to define and it probably took you time to sort out, but it's so, it's so valuable. Like on our, like on the men's team, there's this long history of professionals where people like Aaron Pearsall, Brendan Hansen, and Ian Crocker were all there and were all, you know, five, 10 years older than me mm-hmm. while they were training with this team. Um, and we, they were just a presence, right? Like you said, they weren't involved in gossip. They weren't impressing themselves on team meetings or being like what our captains were, which was the minutia and speaking out. Mm-hmm. They were more of like a, a presence that people could come to. And it sounds like that's what you've set up for yourself. Yeah. And I think that was, it seems like you're, you are now starting a tradition with Laura before you and you now of the Texas women's teams professional group, because when Laura was there in your freshman year, Carol, that was Carol's first year as a coach or Carol's second year as a coach. And you were her Mm -hmm. first recruiting class. Mm -hmm. Now she's got seven years under her belt and it feels like there's a real culture. Yeah. So I want to dig more into that culture later um, when we talk about more about your time as a college swimmer. But since we're on the topic of being a pro, I want to know more big picture. What does it mean to be Madison Cox professional swimmer? So you're not an Olympian, myself too, but we were both professionals. Um, but you made the 2017 world team. Mm-hmm. And you're someone who does make money from swimming, but I don't think a lot of people either out of swimming or a lot of people in swimming understands the mechanics of being someone like yourself, who is a successful professional swimmer that doesn't take the route that like people know when they see Michael Phelps Mm -hmm. or they see Katie Ledecky, or they even see the ISL, which is going on right now because you are not doing the ISL thing right now. Mm -hmm. So how do you piece together? I mean, let's just start with the income and we don't have to say numbers, but what do you piece together to basically make your professional swimmer income right now? Yeah. Um, basically what it consists of is a stipend from USA swimming. Well, the USOC OPC. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I have a sponsor, which is arena and they're incredible and I have an income through them. Um, and then you, I have clinics, so I, I travel around, do clinics, teach some clinics across the country, and then also just meets. Meets have a good amount of prize money in them, and then also with that, I have prize money um, in my arena contract, so if I win a certain meet or do whatever, I usually get a bonus from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to I dig into three of those things, because the swim clinic thing, I think people understand. You travel... You work with kids for a weekend. That's something that I do. And a lot of the people that I talk to do. But people seem to know in today's day and age, the inside and outs of a baseball or a football or a basketball contract. So your arena contract, for those who don't know, the suit companies for the longest time have kind of governed. It's like getting a shoe deal in basketball. That's your main chunk. So for you it's a little bit of base and then a lot of it is incentive, correct? So it's structured out that if you achieve this, this, and this, then you get this, this, and this. Exactly. Yeah. And then at the swim meets, the say the tier pro series, how is that sorted out? So uh, just, I guess, just take us through it for those who don't know. Yeah. So the, the, the pro swim, the tier pro swim series, um, there's about, there, it varies five, six stops every year. Um, just throughout the country and you go to them and basically if you get first, second, and third, you get 
a set amount of money. I think this year was like 1500 for first thousand for second. Um, third was 500 mm-hmm. and it, it changes and it usually increases the closer you get to an Olympic year. Um, and pretty, I mean, that's just per race. And so you can walk away from there if you have a couple good races, you know, five, six grand. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a fine chunk of change and it's, um, but it's also nice that that's not like what I rely on necessarily. Like I have mm-hmm. the stipend that's that in, um, arena's contract, which is really what, um, are my major sources. Right. And that, that tier pro series thing, you said it's nice. I felt that way too when I was swimming and I know when it first got started and it's changed to companies. So it was probably the, I forget it was arena tier. It doesn't matter. The yeah. pro swim series has been around for, you know, over a decade now. And when it was first starting out first, there was like a little bit of money. And then in the 2010s, when I was experiencing it, it was like, okay, this is there, but there's so little money unless you're one of a handful of people Mm -hmm. that it doesn't really expand the paradigm for hundreds of potential pro swimmers, right? You can't, you can't be, you know, the 20th best swimmer in the 200 IM and be like, yeah, I could definitely just go to a bunch of these meets and carve out an income for myself. Yeah. So that takes me to the U- the US OPC stipend. Um, so how does that one work? And how did how have you qualified for it? And I actually want to take us through how you qualified for it in college, because it's a completely legal NCAA approved way to basically be supported by your sports governing body. So let's actually go back to college. What was it like for you in college and how did you qualify for it? Yeah, absolutely. So basically all the qualifications and it changes like minutely each year, but um, you have a one through eight bracket and you get one, one through eight in the world. Um, and that's usually after your big August meet. So whatever you go to your world champs, games, nationals, whatever you compete in. Um, and all the time, it's actually all the times from the entire year, but it usually finishes in August is when the end date of that qualification um, criteria is set and you have the one through eight world rankings and you get a certain amount of money and then you have nine through 16 and they get a certain amount of money. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for college, if you're in college, you can only accept a certain portion of that. So Mm -hmm. I I don't really remember what my college one was, but it was like significantly less than it is now. Right. Um, It's about half because it's, it's basically designated for being alive expenses, right? Yeah like food and transportation, et cetera, et cetera. And so how did that change when you got out of college? Cause you have to requalify for this mm-hmm. every single year. So yeah. you make 2017 worlds coming out of college and now you can basically be supported by something that's twice as big from the same source. Yes. Does that, does, and it's, I believe it's called APA or maybe they've changed the name. Mm-hmm. Does that support offer a sense of stability for you? Do you feel oh, like you can focus more on other things that at the very least you have like that, that rock underneath yeah. you? Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it's enough to pay my rent, pay all the bills, eat everything like that. Um, and then everything beyond that is just like kind of supplementary and, and, and nice, but it, it definitely, you were right. It, it's like a solid rock foundation that you're like, I will, I am able to support myself and train and do what I love with mm-hmm. this. So I want to take it back to college because we talked about how you were supported by this USOPC, OPC support, excuse me. Um, You were 
part, like I said, part of the inaugural class that was recruited by a new coach and Carol Capitani at a program like Texas, where when someone new comes in, there's big expectations. Mm-hmm. Now you grew up in West Texas. Um, I want to know your relationship to the university of Texas, even before the coaching change happened and before you were recruited by Carol mm-hmm. and I guess just how you arrived at your decision to come there. Yeah, that's a good question. So I, um, growing up, I did the swim camps. So mm-hmm. I actually went to Texas swim camp for two years and it was this weird thing back there, back then when, um, when you went to camp, you could actually train with the team. So like, if you were, if you were fast enough, you had like whatever time and whatever event, um, you could train with a team. So mm-hmm. I went for two years and actually trained for a week with, at the time it was Kim Bracken and the rest of the Texas team. And I was just like in awe. First of all, it was like my first real exposure to this kind of level of swimming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was also, it was, it was Texas. So I was in love. I absolutely loved it. We were staying at um doby which like now looking back i'm like oh my gosh by the time i was like this is so cool like yeah um and we'd walk back and forth to practice and i actually my um you know her tasia croces she was my roommate my first two years in college she was actually my roommate at this camp for two years no so, way yeah so i actually that had that was it wasn't the like sole factor in my decision but it really mm-hmm. was a, a pretty large factor because i was i remember i was on my recruiting trip to texas so pretty much from camp, I like knew I was interested in Texas at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was on my recruiting trip to Texas and they got a call and they were like, Tasia just committed, Tasia just committed. I was like, oh my gosh, like how cool would that be to be teammates with Toss? Like she's incredible. Um, and then of course, like one of my other recruiting trips, I was also really interested in Stanford. Um, loved, you know, everything that they had to offer. It was funny because it was also Greg's um, first year, he came in at the exact same time to Carol did. So I really didn't know much about either of them. They were both new to their programs. Um, and there were a lot of different factors that went into it. I am kind of like a homebody. I, I love, I'm proud to be from Texas. I love Texas. I, you know, love seeing my family often. So that was a, a really a, a big factor in deciding to come to Texas and also Carol Capitani. I, um, I just knew from like conversations as a recruit and her coming to visit me that, that she was someone that I was, I was, you know, inspired to swim for. And, um, so I did commit to Texas and the rest is history. And ended up being classmates with my sister, Jordan Suroff. And with Jordan. Yep. Let's pull back. Hi, Jordan. Hi, Jordan. And we're back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wasn't planning on asking you this, but you brought up this swim camp and I've heard stories like that before. I myself have worked swim camps. Um, for example, when I was coaching at University of Virginia, I worked at the UVA swim camp and kids would come back every year and they would see these college kids that were either training when they would walk in the building or they were counselors. And a lot of these kids would be like, yeah, like, I want to go to Virginia. Like, this is super cool. So it's interesting to me, the the influence of swim camps on a school's, I guess, dominance over recruits in a state. And I have, I had a similar experience with someone who's actually in school with you for two years, Trip Cooper. I was his counselor at the UT swim camp, you know, two years before he committed. So this stuff pops up all the time where it's like, yeah, this kid came to swim camp and then he blew up and now he's here. Yeah. Um, Do you still work with the Texas swim camp? Do you believe in its, Obviously, it impacts kids, 
but do you also believe in it, its value to the Texas swimming program in the way that I just described? Oh, absolutely. I do. I remember like, I remember as a camper going to, uh, first of all, having all these, I mean, they, John Alter is the one who kind of orchestrates it all. He's a godsend. He's incredible. I don't know how he does it, but. Mm -hmm. Director uh, of ops for both teams who don't know, for yeah, people who don't yes. know. John Alter, he's a real life superhero, but he has a lot of the pros and post grads that are training at Texas teach some of the days. So I remember Ian Crocker teaching fly and, and, um, and Kathleen Hersey. I remember like seeing all these people and being like, so inspired and then going to the autograph session. I still have my picture with all of them. <laughs> I was like, so stoked for it. Yeah. Um, so I, I know like firsthand the effect that it has on, um, recruits in the Texas swimming. Like I was just in awe. And then, um, Fast forward, I do work the swim camps every year. I actually teach breaststroke and then do the signings and everything. Mm -hmm. um, and do you and feel that similar experience with kids where it's like, and I'm pumping you up and bragging about you so you don't have to do the oh shucks thing. But like now kids are seeing Madison Cox, professional swimmer, world team qualifier that went to Texas and they're like, oh my God, I can be like Madison Cox one day. Like, do you feel that like objectively? Um... I, I mean, I'd ho I hope so. <laughs> I hope they do that. But I, you, you do sense like when they're walking through the line and you'll just like it, the autograph line is what I'm talking about. They'll, you'll just like make small talk or ask them something. And some of them are just like speechless. And they just think it's the, it's the coolest thing. Or like um, when they're taking the picture, they're like, they're like, okay, oh, can, can I get like a selfie or and it's, <laughs> it's really cute. And um, I definitely hope, yeah, that, that, what we're doing and like working some camp is helping to inspire the next, the future generations of Longhorns down the line. Yeah. I love the moments that it feels like pretty much everyone that I talk to that's a good swimmer now has a moment when they were a kid, when they were like, yeah, I met Brandon Hansen or I met, um, pick, pick a name, Gary Hall Jr. And he was super nice to me and told me to just follow my dreams. And now I'm here. I'm like, <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> so yeah. I wonder if it's giving the kids the tool, the tools to be like, okay, that's the finish line. And then yeah. they can chart uh, the path to get there. So just to pivot to you, um, I'm also super interested in the mental side of championship swimming and being great. So can you take us through, you can either take us through a goal setting process or techniques that you use to prepare for big meets as far as your mind goes are there things that you engage in that you've kind of trained yourself to do over the years that you feel like work for you yeah absolutely I think the mental component of swimming is the largest component and the most critical because it's you can get in the water and you can swim laps hard back and forth you can do all the weight training everything like that but the mental component is I think really what sets you apart mm -hmm. um, as an athlete in, in particular a swimmer um so since I started this um, back in high school, actually, actually before high school, I think it was middle school. My coach in Lubbock, Trey Hayes, I worked with him. I started swimming at Lubbock Swim Club when I was four, worked with him until I was 18 and left for college. Um, wow. Yeah. He, that's he that's consistency. Had, yeah, seriously. I don't, I don't like leaving programs apparently, but yeah, he seriously. has a tremendous impact on my life. And, and one of those things that he taught me and that I've taken with me since then um, is visualization. We actually did and when I first learned it, we would do a full muscle um, relaxation progression. So you start at your toes and you tense them up and then you release them and you work your, you know, calves, thighs, you work your way up and then go back down. And then 
straight from that, we'd go into visualization of, of races and especially championship races. And, um, we'd always, um, you, I mean, at that time I was really, my big meets were at Texas. And so I knew Mm -hmm. the pool, but I would really, I'd close my eyes and really visualize myself like in the tech, in the Texas swimming center, like behind the blocks, like I'd see it all. I'd smell it all. I'd feel it all. And, and I'd see exactly what I wanted to do and had prepared to do in a race. So, and I am, it's like, I'm going to, you know, kind of hang out on the fly, maybe stay at the front of the pack. Don't waste much energy, you know, all those little like technique and, and event specific strategies that you have. Like I would run through everything thoroughly in my mind Mm -hmm. and I've continued doing that. I don't really do the muscle um, progression the relaxation thing anymore. Um, but I do always visualize my races. And even if most pools I've gone to by now, um, but if there's a facility, say when I made the world team and went to Budapest, I looked up that facility. I looked up what it'd be like. I knew the crowd would be, would be crazy because Katinka was in all my events. And so mm-hmm. I, and she's from Hungary and that's, she was in her hometown pretty much. And so I knew it was gonna be crazy. And I visualized and I imagined all these things so that the second that I walked out on deck, I, it's, it's like, I'd already done it before. It's like, I'd already been there. And that immediately gave me a sense of like security, I guess. Mm -hmm. And are there things that you do to enhance that visual before you go? Cause I think we talked about something you do before we started the pod, actually, when we were just chatting casually. So you, you picture it in your mind Mm -hmm. and then what else do you do to supplement that imagery? Well, I actually like look up images. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, this is, this, this is the important stuff. This is really important. So Google search images of, of, of the facility of, of everything of, uh, hopefully, usually I, I like to find like pictures of like the facility during a competition. Cause you know, it's different. Mm-hmm. Like our, the Texas swim center is so different every, you know, on the day-to-day basis versus when it's fully packed and crowded for NCAA. So I really try to imagine like what it is like in these intense, like, competitive settings Mm -hmm. and I feel like I mean that that can't be discounted like it seems like you kind of left that part out um maybe it felt silly to say but like I mean that's part of it like that's a big detail is looking at images and seeing your seeing it in your mind and then you get there and like you said you felt security like yeah I've already I've already been here absolutely (sighs) I'm sensing something here Cause it sounds like when you set a goal and you visualize it, like you know how to get there and you're very powerful in going towards that goal. Mm-hmm. You're also someone who has had extremely consistent um, training teams, coaches throughout your lives. You had 14 years with one coach and now you've had seven with another, mm-hmm. which is unreal. That's, That's crazy. <laughs> and, and myself as well. I was with the same club team from age nine through college and also you know you stay attached to a club team so I would come back to train with them in the summer and then I went back to that club team as a pro and it it was always something that I just didn't have to worry about that like I just know I'm going to this team and it's going to be the best thing for me and all I have to think about is you know these visualization techniques like for example I would put goal times for myself for a national junior team I wanted to make on my bathroom mirror yeah and I could look at them every day and I knew just because of this stability, and I want you to get into it in a sec, that if I went to practice and I did my best, I would be on my way towards achieving that. Mm -hmm. So do you, 
it seems like the stability you've had has helped pave the way to achieving those goals. Mm -hmm. Like, do you see that for yourself? Is that part of why you value it? Or is it a chicken or the egg thing where you value stability and also it's made it easier for you to achieve your goals? Um, no, absolutely. I, I think I, well, I didn't really have a choice when I was younger. Like I was just at the club team and I ended up loving it and it was the best that situation I could possibly be in for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, but it changes hard, right? Like change is hard. And especially the a change in coaches, I felt like I've, I'm someone who really, um, has to establish trust with someone. So if I mm -hmm. don't trust what they're doing or what they're saying, or the sets that they're giving me, they're not going to work. Even if I give my best effort and go as hard as I can and have the best out of my life. Like if I don't genuinely in my heart, trust that that is what is best for me. Um, it's, it's not going to work out well. And I, I saw that my first couple of years at Texas, it was, it was hard to adjust to a new coach. And even though Carol was established and she, I knew she was a great coach. I knew she knew what she was doing. It just still took me a second to be like, okay, wait, like this works for me as well. And especially, um, I'd say that extends to tapers. Like when you don't trust your coach or like the process or anything with taper, like that's so that, that creates this mental block. That's like almost insurmountable. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, and so I just, I know I work better, better as an athlete when I, I trust the coach, I trust the process. I know it's going to work. And, and you know what, that just, that's consistency. I try, I trust consistency because it's worked in the past and it's going to work again. And, um, I do change things from year to year. It's not like I'm just like living groundhog day every year of my life. But like, <laughs> um, I, Absolutely, things, yeah. I, I know they're going to be for the better based on, you know, past experiences. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I love what you said about the Groundhog Day thing. And I have, I have a question around that. Um, but before I do, I asked you about the consistency thing because I go to swim camps just like yourself all over the country. And often I get questions from parents and this is their right. And I never tell them that they're, you know, wrong or a jerk for asking this. But I'm like, you know, I'm not feeling great about the team we're at. Um, I just don't know if he's getting enough. And the kid's like nine, 10 years old okay, you know, uh, should we switch teams? And I'll be like, you know, I, I really think you got to give that place a shot. I really think that consistency and stability is important for a kid because if they're constantly switching up, like you said, a relationship with a coach where trust has to be rebuilt, yeah. rebuilt, 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 then they're focusing on that instead of focusing on straightforward towards what they want to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad that we, we got to cover that part. Um, Back to the Groundhog Day thing, because it could sound like that. You've been in Austin being a swimmer who also goes to school for the last seven years. Mm -hmm. But within, there has been a lot of change. Um, you, were, you were the first recruiting class for a new coach. Mm -hmm. So I want to know the difference that you felt between what it was like for you as a freshman relative to a group of people who had a relationship established with a previous coach and also their relationships with each other mm -hmm. kind of threaded through that. Right. Yeah. And then by the time you were a senior, when it was everybody that the new coach had recruited, mm -hmm. um, I want to know if you know, if you remember any contrast between those two things in terms of maybe the team dynamic or your experience or your relationships with the other girls. Yeah. There, there, there has definitely been like, maybe I, I didn't see it like as I was going through it, but like looking back from my freshman year and the, the culture and the team and the camaraderie component, especially like I can see a vast difference between then and now. Um, 
and I think it, it it's just from Carol. It's what she's created. It's what she's who she's brought in. It's mm-hmm. um, and it's you know like you said how Wyatt talked about the seniors passing it down to the freshmen. I think um, the seniors under the previous coach may not have had like the best uh, mindset outlook. Maybe weren't the happiest about just swimming in general. Um, and I think that has changed a lot. And I think there's a lot more positivity on the team. I, I definitely think there's a lot more camaraderie. Um, I think this one thing the, the men's team in particular actually has done really well at. And one of their, I think, uh, as an outsider, outsider, I guess, mm-hmm. um, has been like a core component of Texas men's swimming is just like how well they get behind each other. And like, you can just see they genuinely support each other and want every other person on the team to do well because they know their success depends on that mm-hmm. and I think the women's team has adopted that a lot better in my freshman year I didn't necessarily feel like supported by everyone on the team like this like the people who maybe held like some kind of like resentment towards the sport for like whatever reason um but now the team they they really have each other's backs and um and it's definitely it's different and I think in a good way a positive way that like makes me like really excited to be an alum and to to be able to support them for the next however many years because you're part of something now that's been unbroken for the entire time carol's been there instead of going through change or maybe people maybe maybe people believe in the program maybe they didn't under the previous Mm -hmm. without commenting on whether or not it was good or bad i don't think any one of us can judge that but there was a lack of belief like you said Mm -hmm. and you mentioned that the men's team so quick to support each other and have each other's backs. Um, I mean, part of that, it's so easy when you're on that team to want to give yourself over to it because there's been 40 years of success and consistency coming back to the consistency thing. So was it just easier to believe in the program as Carol grew into her own and started changing over how things ran? Mm -hmm. And then by the time you were a senior, was it just like second nature? Because obviously you said in the time you didn't notice it. Because when you're in it, you don't know. You always yeah, need yeah. you always need retrospect and hindsight. Yeah. So when you were a senior and you were about to leave, maybe even when the season was over, when you looked back, um, did you did you feel like yes, like this is where I want things to be now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like my freshman year, I also didn't really know what was going on because you're like a freshman, and you're like taking in all these different like. Um, and you have no point of reference. Yeah, and you have no point of reference. But I, like, looking back, like, especially my senior year, when I looked back, I, I felt that I was competing for myself. Like, everyone had these, like, individual goals that they want to accomplish. But by my senior year, I really felt like our main thing, like, I couldn't give a crap what I scored individually. Like, what I wanted to do was, like, I wanted to have a top five program. And I wanted mm-hmm. that to be where we were. And I felt like everyone really got behind that goal and put aside their, like, individual goals um, although they do like obviously contribute to the main goal in the end, but I, I think that everyone's like primary goal was a team goal instead of an individual goal, which it's like obviously contrasted to how it was my freshman year. Right. And you still reached heights that you wanted to reach as a senior yeah. by setting team goals. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you can take me through what you guys said as seniors. You said you wanted a, you wanted a top five program. Mm-hmm. You guys set a team GPA goal. Yeah. And then was, and so the team goal was top five at NCAAs. Yeah. Did you feel like that almost gave you a a deeper well to draw from to achieve as an individual because you were given to something bigger? 
Yes. I, you, I mean, you just, you just nailed it around the head right there. I always feel like I compete better when I'm competing for something bigger than myself. Like when it's mm -hmm. just for me, I'm just like, eh, wait, wait, you know, whatever you, it really like that fire is drawn in you in your gut and in your core when it's for something else. Like when it's for a team or a lot of times I compete now for Carol, um, or like family or whoever got you there, whatever it may be. Like I've always done better when I've done it for team USA. That's like a clear obvious one that I like absolutely. thrive with but like but um but absolutely I, I I felt like I've always achieved greater individual goals when I've been competing for something bigger than myself mm -hmm. and the fact that you've been able to pivot from such an easy thing of giving to the swim team which is an obvious thing to want to give yourself over to like an external source to draw your well from to now, like you said, giving over to your family or your coach, that's not a pivot that a lot of professionals can make. Once they lose the structure of the collegiate swim team, they're yeah. like, what do I do anymore? Yeah. But you mentioned Team USA, and that's what I wanna press on next because you were still in college in 2016. You went mm -hmm. to the Olympic trials and your best event was the IM mm -hmm. and you got fourth place. Yeah. And so to contrast, because I think we had different reactions to this and it was because we were at different, actually we were the same age. In 2012, I was fourth mm -hmm. and it was like the best day of my life. But that's because I had this feeling of abundance. This is going to last forever. In 2016, I'll be 25. I can peak, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm just here to, as a stepping stone. Mm -hmm. And also Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte are my events. So like, there's no point, right? <laughs> there's no point, right? If you watch the video, I'm in it for three seconds. <laughs> And, but people say to me, oh man, you got fourth. You were so close. And I'm like, I'm, I'm okay with it. But contrast to you, uh, the 200 IM, or was it the four? Just correct me real it quick. Both. It was both. And double whammy. And that's, I hope we, I hope you can take us through maybe how you were feeling. You felt like you had a real shot. And that fourth place felt a lot closer than my fourth place. Even though on paper, it was the same thing and the same distance away from the Olympic team, emotionally, I have to imagine it was a very different experience for you. Yeah, it was, I would say, um, sounds like my 4IM experience was, was like similar to your 2IM. So I was not expecting to make the team the 4IM. So I just kind of like went out. It was the first day of the meet. Mm -hmm. I went out there. I had fun. I was in like lane one or something and got fourth. I was like, wow, great. Like, I'm feeling great. I'm going to make the team and accomplish all my hopes and dreams, everything goals this summer. Like it, this is it. Like I'm feeling great. And then the two IM comes along, like cruise through prelims has strong semi. I think I was like second or something going in second or third going into finals. I'm like, was feeling super strong. Um, and then I, I was like either leading. I don't, I honestly have not w watched the race video once since it happened. Um, obvious reasons because um, leading your second place at the 150 mark, clearly not either of those at the 200 mark. And it, it, it was devastating. It, it sucked. It did not feel good. I remember I tried to compete the rest of the summer and it was just, it was just terrible. And I was. Um, it's, it's hollow. Those bonus meets in August, it's kind of hollow afterward. Yeah. Um, Wow, what a whirlwind of a re of a week! So, how far? Because the the women's schedule is a little bit different. How far after the four hundred IM was the two hundred IM? Because it it leads into a question I have about it. It was about four day days. Off. You no, you have a day off, and then um, you one start day. The next day, yeah. Okay, 
So did you have these expectations about the 200 IM going into the meet or did they shift after you had the success you had in the 400 IM? Both. Okay. I had the expectations going in and then after the 4 IM, I was like, skyrocketed that expectation like here we go you allowed yourself to believe like whoa this could really happen like you did you feel did you feel like i just went bug-eyed there did you feel that electricity after your 400 i am where it was like you almost allowed yourself a deeper level of belief going into the two? Oh, absolutely i remember like going to sleep the night of the 4 a.m and telling my roommate maggie dincenzo i was like maggie i'm making this freaking team and <laughs> little did i know and yeah, and disappointment on the back end. I bring that up to push us to a positive place because I don't, I don't want us to have to dwell on something <laughs> that was tough for you to go through. Yeah. You have these expectations, fly back breast, you're going through it, breaststroke's your best event, you're out in the head, and then the freestyle you tapered off and people caught you and you missed the team, mm -hmm. right? So going into your senior year, and to kind of give everybody the ending of the story, you eventually make the 2017 Worlds, which is the same amount of people qualified, top two. What shifted? What did you change? What, um, and it could be mental, it could be training, it could be how you treated your body. I think it was mental. I think 2016, even though I missed the team, I, I think it still gave me the confidence and kind of the fire within me, like the chip on your shoulder kind of situation to be like, I know what I want and I know it's more than that. I know mm -hmm. I don't want to feel that way again. And so I'm going to do whatever I can to change the, the situation and, so that it does not happen again. Mm -hmm. And okay, you had that. And I want to talk about practice first. Did you carry that with you at practice every day? Oh, or yeah. was it kind of pushed back? Cause this was like, this was a really tough moment for you, July, 2016. Mm -hmm. Did you dig more into the team goals of the 2016, 2017 season to almost kind of push that out for a little bit? Like, did that help you give more to the team that it's like, I just, I don't want to feel that feeling anymore yeah. and give yeah. you kind of some space from it. Absolutely. It did. And so coming out of March season's over, you're happy with how your senior year went. Um, what what shifted between March and late June, early July when you finally qualified for Worlds and had that breakthrough swim? Um, well, it was my first time like being a professional. I I signed with Arena not too far after um I finished my NCAA, NCAA eligibility. I knew I wanted to go with Arena. Um, started that in the works pretty much the day I was done with NCAAs mm -hmm. and um. And I kind of had, I, I, I think it was, just, it was really just confidence. Like I had this confidence. I, I had, um, I, I just like this core, just belief that I knew I could accomplish so much. Mm -hmm. Did you, you, and you, at this point, you're four years in with Carol, mm -hmm. you believed in the taper. We don't have to, we don't have to parse through that. You believed in the training going into nationals in 2017, um, and where, where were they? Cause that leads to a question I have. They were in Indianapolis. They're in Indianapolis storied pool, IUPUI, a lot of big things happen there. And for those who haven't been, every time you go, it feels like almost like a chapel to swimming. Mm -hmm. Um, you can see the Olympic teams that were qualified at that pool. All of the names are written on the wall behind the pool. Um, pretty amazing place. 
Did you take it one step at a time with your visualization that we talked about? Like going into nationals, did you visualize yourself at nationals or were you thinking Budapest starting before nationals even started? Like how did you stack those things up with your mental preparation? Um, this is, this is a little bit of a funny answer. So I, in my mind, it was Budapest mm -hmm. until about three days before I left for the meet. And I came down with the worst food poisoning bout I've ever had in my life. Oh and my gosh. I was, I was at the point that I was like, I'm not getting on this plane. Like I can't go. Um, ultimately I went and like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I had to take a, I didn't swim anything, but the 4am, um, the worst feeling for I am in my life. Like there is nothing that hurts more than when you were 10 pounds down, have no muscle and you're just trying to like get to the wall before I am. And then thankfully the two I am was until the last day. So until before the food poisoning happened, my mind was on Budapest after the food poisoning happened. I was like, let's just one foot in front of the other here. And it wasn't until the prelim of the two I am that I was like, okay, like I feel I'm okay. Like I'm going to, like we can do this. And then mm -hmm. my mind was set towards like just making the team um, and, and getting past this trials and, and going forward and regaining strength. If I can maybe feel like I'm in your, in your headspace going into the two I am the 400 I am at, at, at the Olympics trials that served to kind of push you a little bit little bit high up like Icarus like oh man now I can really do this and really jack you up mm -hmm. it sounds like the 400 IM was important in the opposite way at this meet where oh. going in you're thinking Budapest you're flying high you're like I'm yeah. doing this thing and then the food poisoning it almost I mean did you feel like the the 400 IM almost like absorbed the food poisoning and then you could kind of package that up as that happened and now yeah. I can and now I can clean clean and free move on it to the 2 IM. yeah there's also just like and you know, being an IM or like this weight that's just taken off your shoulders when you finish the four IM. Like it is like you just like drop this like boulder and you're like all downhill okay, from there. Like I can do a two IM. Like I can't I can't finish a four IM fatigued and like what I was feeling at that point. But like a two IM, like I can manage that. Yeah. And I think that's more of what I was thinking. I was like, if I can put my hand on the wall for the four IM and like I, I ended up like fifth or sixth. It wasn't like wasn't like terrible, but like was not what I was wanting going into it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think my mind was like, I can put my hand on the wall for the 4am. That's over. That's done with like 2am is the shot. And like, that's what we got to just like all in for. Yes. And then, and then you were present in Indianapolis. Yep. So a lot of people black out during the race. So you don't have to, if you don't remember much from the 2am, then you don't have to tell us, but what was going through your head throughout that race? If you can remember the 200 IM all the way up to when your hand touches the wall and you know that you punched your ticket. Um, I, honestly, I don't remember anything from races. I, I do black yeah. out. I do remember though, the last 25, I was like, I don't want to make this team. Cause it was like, just at that point, it was just Mel and I mm -hmm. in the front. And like, I think there was like a, a bit of distance. Um, but I was like, I think this is going to happen. And then, and then I like touched the wall. I was like, cool but but it was also like mel and i were kind of in a in a fight there so i was like okay like i still want to win this but i, mm -hmm. I think my my main goal was just like getting past trials right and mel being melanie margalis mm -hmm. someone who has a similar skill set to you um in that she's very strong in the breaststroke leg mm -hmm. but then she also really brought it in the freestyle so yeah. even though you were in this because the im even the 200 where it's one lap of each stroke it's a chess match, right? Mm -hmm. 
like instead of a, a rook, a knight, you know, a bishop and a pawn, you have fly back breast and free. Mm-hmm. So just to pull back for a sec, and then I want to keep going with talking about the breakthrough swim. How, what was your race strategy for the 200 IM either at that meet or what is something that you train that you hold in your mind and practice every day of this is what I'm doing from the start, maybe through my butterfly and even within each lap, mm-hmm. how, how do you adapt your race to your own strengths? Yeah, I, I really, I do try to kind of attack it stroke by stroke. So the fly, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, like I just kind of cruisy it, like as chill as I can be with and like conserving as much energy as I can. So not dying on the fly, but was still like maintaining like it's good speed, like staying up near the front of the pack. Um, backstroke, I just keep my tempo up easy on the legs, breaststroke, like that's where I kind of make my move. And then freestyle, it is all you can to the wall. Like mm-hmm. it, not from the first stroke of the lap, I kind of build into it a little bit and then all you can and all you have to the wall. Right. That, and that, that first stroke build, that was part of why I asked within the lap. Because mm-hmm. the thing about long course, the, the short course 200 IM, it's sprint, especially when you're tapered to NCAs. It's a controlled sprint because you have walls. And when you get to freestyle, you're dead on sprinting. Yeah. But when you get to long course, it's so much more aerobic, mm-hmm. half the walls, twice the distance per lap, that you come off that wall in freestyle. And especially you're a breaststroker, but people like myself, it would burn up everything in breaststroke just to get through it. And then I was allegedly a freestyler, but on races where I was panicking, be like, all right, I'm on freestyle. I got to go. Everyone caught me. That would kill me. Yeah. So how do you, what is the the headspace you have to be in coming off the wall out of breaststroke and into that, those first 15 meters of freestyle where you're gunning for the wall. It's the last lap but you have to control yourself for the first couple strokes. Yeah, it's pretty hard because it's, I mean, it's in your nature to just like get up and just start like pounding away, like tempo up. But I know how that that's going to end up. And I felt that so many times of just like the full body lockdown pretty much. And I've just like trained myself to build in the first three strokes, you know, kind of smooth, bring up your tempo, then you get to pace and then you can start racing. Um, and I, I think that's that's really been a trial and error kind of kind of learning. Mm-hmm. And that works for you. Mm-hmm. It is something that I think is across the board in long course student I am, unless you're just a freak who can sprint everything. But it is generally taught like back half within the lap, right? Build yeah. into it and then go. Yeah. And I think that's such an interesting piece because I don't know. I just think the long course student I am is fascinating. Just I am or die. <laughs> I am or die. I am or. Um, yeah, I love it. so you made the team mm-hmm. ticket punched you're going to Budapest mm-hmm. so what was it like being part of team USA finding this new like you said outlet to give yourself over to when you're swimming you've now achieved this this higher plane that you're a part of um yeah it, it really was great and I had been on team USA trips before but I think this was like this was like the first big the biggest level one I'd been on um Mm -hmm. because within the swimming community if anybody who's not a swimmer sorry I just gotta clarify as far as swim meets go worlds is on level with the olympics right just you know a couple billion less people watch it but and you had done meets before like had you done short course worlds Mm -hmm. um stuff like that all those things and those are all super important Mm -hmm. but 
within the swimming community, getting to worlds is similarly important to make the Olympics. So you have now punched a real, like I am for real skis ticket. Um, what was that experience like? Was it, were you able to get a handle around it? Like, did you feel like you could take it in or was it just like a whirlwind for you? Um, a little bit of both. So, um, for those of y'all who don't know, we go to training camp first. And so ours was in Croatia and it was really, I mean, it was fun. You're with all your friends, you're like hanging out, you're swimming outdoors, this beautiful pool that like overlooks the freaking ocean. It was like incredible. So I was just like having fun, enjoying it, trying to be in the moment. And then you fly or we drove actually, um, to Budapest. And that's when it like kind of got real and you're like, Whoa, here we go. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's honestly, I, it, it's so fun. Like you get to go to the sessions, you cheer on your teammates. Like you just feel so like, it's like, there's no better hype pretty much than like watching someone achieve their goals and like get on that metal stand, win the gold, you know, there, there's like no better hype. And I, I feel like I was really able to like take that with me and take that excitement, take that enthusiasm with me like into my own races and be like, okay, I want to like, I want to, this is my turn now. Like I want to do it and like yeah. hype you guys up. Yeah. And you already felt like you were a part of a team because like you said, through WOGS and through Short Course Worlds, mm -hmm. you already knew all these people that you were on the team with. So it wasn't as much, I'm the new guy. It's Madison, like it was inevitable. And now Madison's here. Like, hey, Madison, like glad you could join us. We've been waiting for you kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Like it, it was waiting for you to get there instead of you like getting there for the first time as like a new thing, I guess. Yeah. So not feeling like the new guy, I imagine that was pretty important to your comfort level being on the team as opposed to not knowing anybody. Oh, absolutely. I, I definitely like appreciated a lot of my, um, our fellow um, Texas pros were there. Townley Haas um, was there, a bunch of others. And so that, that definitely made it feel more comfortable. Um, and then, yeah, just have like having been on trips and, and knowing people throughout my swimming career. Mm -hmm. Townley Haas, men's, men's Texas swimming uh, team member what what were you holding in your mind once you got to Budapest and it was your turn to swim your event were you able to actually refocus because I've talked to a couple people by now that have been to the Olympics and one of the things that they've said is in their first experience and again you had done big USA meets before so you weren't like a newbie or anything but in their first experience getting there was such an emotional charge for them that they couldn't really grasp achievement beyond that once they got there. So mm -hmm. I want to know, how did you refocus? Because you had been holding hungry in your mind and you knew you could do big things on the world stage before you made the team. What was your goal once you got there? To get on the podium for us. Okay. I, I mean, there was like, I had, so in 2016 short course worlds, I got third in the 2am and the 4am and just that feeling of watching that flag be raised and be like I accomplished this like for for us like for mm -hmm. that medal count for our, our country and everything like that and I so I knew um going into Budapest like that was I was having fun I was enjoying I was like you know embracing the energy of the team but like I I always knew that that was the goal and that's what I wanted to do mm -hmm. and I imagine that is what contributed to you you what place did you get in your event you got the bronze right yeah what was that like when you got your hand on the wall and you got on the podium for team usa i mean you you not only did you get there but then once you got there you did your job 
as stated, which is win medals for Team USA. It, what was that was feeling like? like? Um, surreal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like, I mean, I during the race, the actual race, I was like last until – I mean, I, I touched the wall at the 150 mark last. So this mm-hmm. was like pretty in pretty big contrast to 2016 where I was, I think, first or second at the 150 wall. And I was just, I mean, it was all that fuel and that fire for, like I said, something bigger than myself and for Team USA. And I think I remember touching the wall and just like from that point on into like the media zone and then to putting freaking my hair up and getting my eyebrows ready <laughs> for the podium. Like it was all just like this whirlwind kind of deal. Um, um, but it was, it, it was like exciting. And you were like, I was like proud to go back to the team area. Cause I like, everyone was like hyping me up and they were so excited for me. I just like felt so like loved and supported. Yeah. Uh, I love that little detail about the eyebrows. That's yeah, that was like the one thing I brought with me like to finals was like my eyebrow pencil, just in case I made the podium. Again, going back to your visualization, you were preparing yourself in a tactile way to achieve your goal. So yeah, yeah, it's goofy, but I put that on the same level as growing up, going to the Texas pool and going to the Texas swim camp and then ending up at practice. You Googling images of the Budapest pool, being ready to swim at Budapest, being in Budapest and taking your your eyebrow stuff with you. You were getting ready to get on the podium. Yeah, I had visualized that moment for for far too long yeah and once you and once you had I mean just to do a football thing once you (laughs) once you were given the ball on the one yard line you stampeded right through and you scored yeah and an amazing thing and it just I'm just seeing all of the visualization come together and I'm seeing just an awesome pattern with that um okay so to pivot because I think it's important to talk about this even though it was a tough time Mm -hmm. so you coming out of 2017 and something awful happens. You were suspended. And unless you want to, we don't really need to pick through the details of it because people can find news about it on Swim Swam, et cetera, et cetera. What I want to more focus on is what was just going on with you. Um, because, okay, you were suspended, but you still had goals and you still needed to swim and train. Yeah. yeah? So while that's going on, there's this whirlwind around you of did Madison cheat? Um, you know, are you going to be suspended? There's just so much that's like cloudy and fuzzy looming over you after 19, 20 years of consistency, like you said, and being able to count on your daily routine. Yeah. I think the part that's super interesting to start at is for the longest, for a little while you knew and you couldn't tell anybody, right. Mm -hmm. Or like, or at the very least people didn't know. Yeah. So let's start there. How did you, how did you attack this thing? as Madison Cox, a swimmer, not Madison Cox managing a perception in the media. Yeah. So pretty much the only people that knew were my parents, my two parents and Carol and Eddie, only people in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was so challenging. It was, it was, it was incredibly challenging. Cause you know, I had to walk into, like you said, I had to walk into the pool every single day and just train like it wasn't happening and train mm-hmm. like I was going to be able to compete at the end of the season like if you're if we're talking if we're going back to the whole visualization and like how much I rely on that to compete I mean that was completely ripped out from under me I didn't know what to visualize I didn't know what I was going to be able to do I I had to completely make stuff up and kind of go on the fly and that I mean it it was pretty close the closest thing to derailing me 
um, that I've ever experienced because I, I just went into practice every day and I was, I was upset. I was angry. Um, but it was also still practice. So it was still like my sanctuary, my happy place. And my friends were still there and I, I was still getting to do what I loved. And so it was this weird, like mix of emotions every day, walking into practice and, and being on deck and, and try to, trying to like be that leader. I was pro. And so I was trying to be a leader for the team and, and contain my emotions and not get like overly mad every day, but also I couldn't just reach out and be like, Hey, like Kelly, like I'm really struggling today. Like I, 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 that just absolutely wasn't the question. And there were some times that I like full on broke down in my goggles and I just had to like push off and, and, and swim and, and pretend like everything was okay. And, um, it, it was, it was definitely one of the most, I mean, the most trying time I've gone through. Was it hard to manage these super close relationships you had with these girls when, like, God, you want to, okay, if I'm going through something, I can tell my wife, obviously, because I'm, you know, we're married and I tell her everything, or I can call up one of my friends if, if that's not enough and talk to them about it, right? You can dump, or I can dump my problems on my family. And especially when I was swimming, you know, that locker room before and after practice, that's where you check in with your people. That's yeah. where you tell them things are going great. School's actually pretty tough right now. Had a tough time with a guy or a girl that I was in a relationship with. But you were in such a unique situation where you're, you, you have these friendships where you see these people every single day. They're not your coworkers, even though you're a pro. They're your friends that you see every single day. And you had to kind of package this in your mind. Mm -hmm. So was it tough to manage your close relationships um, oh, yeah. at practice while you're doing this where they're like, dude, what's going on? And you're just like, like, how did you even deflect that? What did what was the mechanics of that? Cause that's mind blowing to me that you were able to manage that. Yeah. It, I mean, that was, that was, like I said, the, the hardest part of it all was just like having to, I just pretended, I, I really just pretended like I was okay every day or if I wasn't okay, I, I said it was school or I was just going through it. And, and it really, it did, I think it hurt some of my relationships cause I couldn't, you can't be vulnerable and you can't like talk to them and even I mean my roommates my roommates didn't know nobody mm -hmm. knew it was like something I would go home and just like shut my door of my room and start crying and they'd be like what's up with like she, they I'm sure they thought like saw I was like bipolar or like something was wrong with me because like my emotions were just like I would I would put on a face forever for people and then like behind closed doors and like or behind my goggles it was just a whole different person a whole different set of emotions that was going on mm -hmm. and to add a little bit of um, weight to what I'm about to ask, your roommates were swimmers. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't even escape it at home. Just to kind of paint a picture of like, swimming is so powerful in the relationships that it creates. But if you're in the space like, and I think this is a parable for other stories that people have about whether it's mental health or they don't feel great about swimming, when you're in like the throes of swimming, like you were, and it's your entire, like every day of your, every minute of your life, like mm -hmm. flows through the relationships you have in swimming, whether you're at home or at practice, yeah. um, it can be hard to escape it. Like there's, it's hard to have me time. So what, how did you, what did you do to get through it? Did you lean on this circle of people being your parents, Carol and Eddie? Um, did you lean on your goals? Did you do any just maybe just take us through the people first and then we can go into the mental side of it. Yeah, I, I really did. I, I leaned on, I leaned on my parents a lot. 
Um, but I also knew it was an emotional burden for them. I mean, like every time I called my mom, she would like, I knew she was on the verge of tears. <laughs> like, so I, I also tried not to like have respect for their feelings and what they were going through with it all. But also Carol, a lot of it was on Carol and not even, I mean, our assistant coach Rorick didn't even know it was, it was really difficult. Um, but they were my, I mean, my big outlets in all of this was, was leaning on my parents and Carol and Eddie as well. Right. And like you said, there was almost an element of shame where like, you don't want to put too much on your parents or your coach yeah. either. Yeah. So I hope that I'm for people watching, I hope I'm painting a picture right now of, like I said, this isn't a straight up mental health issue where you're, you know, you're going to the therapist and they, and they say you have this, but it was this massive thing that you had to hold inside of you and had yeah. no outlets for it. So you lean on your parents, you lean on your coaches, but even that, it's hard to juggle the, the internal feelings of putting that on them. Mm -hmm. So what did you do mentally to cope with this? And were there things that you brought in or cut out that helped you get through this time period? Um, I think, I mean, the main mental thing that I really and like strongly heavily leaned on was like, I did not do anything wrong. Like people don't get punished for doing all the right things. Mm -hmm. was what I was like really focused on. I was like, I am not a cheater. I did not intentionally take anything. I, and I just had to rely on the, that will come out. Like the truth will come out. And like somehow at, at, at that time, like you know, we didn't know the source of it. And so that was the real struggle. But I was, I was, I just trusted in my gut that the source and like, however this substance got into my body that will be found and I will be vindicated of all of this because I know I never actually did anything wrong. It sounds like that was the the mantra you repeated, which is bad. Like things don't happen like this to people who did nothing wrong. Yeah. And eventually you'll see, did that create like a little light for yourself at the end of the tunnel? Oh, absolutely. Even yeah. if, even if it was hard to know what that light was yeah. in terms of what would be your vindication. Yeah, exactly. So you're going through this tough time. You have a light at the end of the tunnel and then the news boat broke publicly, which probably opened up a whole new dimension in terms of, I guess, external voices, people who you don't even know. Cause you know, swim swam has a huge reach. So anything goes on swim swam, it's big news. Someone who's on the world team news is released about you. That's big news. But it sounds like that was actually an opportunity for you on a personal level to finally take steps forward with just being vulnerable and being able to tell your friends and all those people that you told they were able to, you probably didn't feel like you had to unload on them because then they could tell other people too. So yeah. what was that like when the news broke um, both externally and internally for yourself? Um, honestly, I, I remember I knew the news was breaking that morning and I was beyond scared. It was the hardest talk I gave to the team. I stood up in front of them and told them that what was happening, what was going to happen, what this meant for me, everything like that. And I had a, I stood up in front of my teammates and friends and had that conversation. Mm -hmm. And then um, I drove to a lake, the lake, and I completely dissociated myself from like all of the world. I turned off my phone. I went with Tasia um, and our parents and 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 I just really tried to get away from it as much as possible. Um, and I, I was really scared. Like I was scared 
people are going to judge you. People are going to have their opinions. They're going to think what they want to think no matter what. And I remember turning on my phone and being like in complete awe of the outpouring of like love and support from everyone. I think I got a message from like every single person on the national team being like, I can't imagine what you're going through. Like here, I'm here for you. Or like Andrew Wilson, um, he's on the national team. He was world's member last year. Um, he was a pro at Texas at the time, but he swam for Emory and he called me and was like, Hey, mad dog. Like I made you some cookies. Can I bring them over? Like I just remember being like blown away by the love and support that I received. Um, and then I remember getting back to practice and it was like, it was just such a relief. Like it was like this huge burden has been like taken off me and like people know. And like, if I'm like <laughs> in a terrible mood at practice or like, they can tell I'm going through it. Like they know, and they can also like, my teammates can talk to me about it. I can talk to them about it. Like it's, it was just so much of a relief. And also to just know that anyone who knows me, I genuinely believe like knows that I would never do anything. And that's the, those are the opinions that I cared about. That's kind of, that's what I lean into. I mean, your, your sister texted me and my whole Texas family texted me like every, all the alums. It just felt like so, I think your mom texted me actually too. Yeah, she, she told our family and we all immediately locked into, okay, we're here for Madison. Like yeah, my mom it, was telling us that my dad was like, you know, she, this is baloney. Like everyone was on, like, that's part of this, the family of Texas swimming. Exactly. Right? Exactly. It was just like, it was, it was like overwhelmingly incredible to see. Mm -hmm. So you're coming out of it and feeling this huge sense of relief and now today we're talking to you on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. One aspect, moving on to a different part, because just an amazing sense of absolution that you made it through it. And then eventually you were vindicated both literally with, um, now I can't remember, USADA and WADA. Mm -hmm. Your suspension was lifted. And then also publicly because you were able to say, hey, look, this is what happened. And it was not because of me cheating. It's because of contamination. Yeah. So now we get to today, and this part is one that people might scratch their heads at why I'm talking about it, but I've always been fascinated with the part of swimming and diving, and I say diving because people don't really understand that, even though they're two different sports, and people ask me, like, why, is, why are they together swimming and diving? And I'll always tell them, like, I mean, it doesn't matter, but at a place especially like Texas – Swimming and diving are one team and everyone is together on this. And you actually have a relationship with a diver who's in your class, Murphy Bromberg. Mm -hmm. She's your roommate now. Um, and you guys are on the journeys of being, of being pros together. Mm -hmm. And also she had the same experience to you, as you of missing the Olympic team narrowly in 2016 and now is on the back end of that, getting ready for 2021 to try and qualify again. So what is that relationship like where you guys understand each other, but on the other side of it, you're not coming home to a swimmer every day where you can escape swimming. Yeah. So can you take us through that part? Yeah, it's, I mean, I mean, first of all, she's just hands down my best friend. She's incredible. She's actually the one who peeked her head in here earlier. I, she's my roommate and I forgot to tell her um, that I was doing this or she's been gone for a little bit, but, um, she's been absolutely incredible to have. I mean, especially with this going through the COVID thing and with the Olympics getting postponed. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. We're both like, we feel some emotions toward this because we both had like lives planned for after 2020. Like I was planning, I'm going to med school, medical school next year. She was going to move out to California. Like it was just mm-hmm. like all these, this like shift in our whole life plans happened this year. And it was so nice. It's been incredible to just have her there through it all. And like knowing, like not just like knowing what's happening to me but like really deeply feeling it and like going through it herself and so I think we've really been able to lean on each other throughout this whole process and whole experience and I think it's going to serve both of us better in the end. Mm -hmm. And also a sort of separation of church and state where you guys can talk to each other about it without feeling like you're impressing your it's just different when you're when you're talking swimmer to swimmer you're like the swimmer's going through it too so I almost can't dump it all on them mm-hmm. but she's a diver so you guys have this enough of a divide that you can talk to each other about this stuff and not feel like oh they must be going through the same thing like you don't day to day murphy's diving schedule is completely different from yeah. yours yeah so you can kind of count on that difference in sport being enough that you're not just diving in not literally metaphorically diving into the same well as if you were to tell one of your swimmer friends so yeah what, absolutely what that i mean it's like for your friendship yeah, it's absolutely ideal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, Madison, I want to thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today and talking to all of us. Uh, as always, I'll be cheering from afar, and uh, Jordan will as well. And sit, talk soon. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, see ya. See ya. All right, that's the show. Thank you to Madison for stopping by, and thank you to her sponsor, Arena, for helping promote the episode. If you enjoyed that, like I said at the top, uh, stick around next week. One of, the, one of the nights next week, Madison and I will be doing a live show where we engage with listener feedback. It'll be a, a mailbag episode, as they call it, uh, in the biz. <laughs> uh, so if you have any questions for Madison or myself, submit them to austin at procornerpodcast.com via email or at procornerpodcast on our Instagram page. Thanks so much for stopping by Procorner, and uh, talk to you soon.